Welcome back to another episode of Creedal Theology and Culture. I am joined today for the first time in quite a while by my friend Casey Chalk. Casey, as you'll recall, is a freelance writer who is really quite prolific. It seems like every day or every other day he's posting something uh, that he's written somewhere, Crisis Magazine, The Federalist. Uh, he, he writes for a bunch of different places. It would be too, too numerous to list all of them. Uh, but he holds a, a BA in history and an MA in teaching from the University of Virginia, a master's in theology from the Notre Dame Graduate School of Theology at Christendom College, and he writes a lot about Catholicism in the, in the public square, uh, conservative politics, cultural analysis. Uh, there's a lot that falls under his purview here. And today we're going to talk about some some things that touch on, I think, all of those. Uh, Casey and his wife hail from Northern Virginia, where they just actually moved to a new house, and the kids have a little bit of land to play on outside, so they're uh, they're going out there every day and soaking up the summer. Uh, and maybe giving uh, Casey and his wife some quiet time in the house. But welcome back to Creedle, Casey. Thanks, Zach. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I, uh, I'm excited to have you. Uh, I do also know, and I have not mentioned yet, that you have a forthcoming book. It is your first published book, uh, and uh, it explores a really interesting topic that does not get enough play in the press or even in uh, sort of smaller conservative Catholic circles. But give us the 15-second elevator pitch for what this book is and Tell us where we can get it. I know it's not out yet. I'm going to have you back on the show to talk about the book when it is out and people can buy it. But just give us a little little teaser now and tell us where we can start looking for it. Sure. So uh, the tentative title is going to be The Persecuted of Pakistan. Um, I think it's like Tales uh, from the Asylum Seeker Crisis in Bangkok, Thailand. It's uh, telling the story of my three years uh, living in Thailand with my family when we got heavily invested in the asylum seeker crisis. Not a lot of people know that there are uh, close to 10,000 asylum seekers and refugees living in Thailand, many of whom are Christians and Catholics who are fleeing religious persecution. Probably the, ma the majority of them come from Pakistan. Uh, they go to Bangkok um, to try and apply for uh, refugee status to the UN, and they get stuck there because the UN takes many years to process their applications, and usually the answer is no, and then they're stuck. They don't want to go back to be persecuted by uh, Islamic extremists in their home country. Um, so, that, yeah, it's basically just the story of how my wife and I became intimately involved in a lot of these um, people's stories and how we, how we were able to help and, uh, yeah, what, what prospects look like for the future, uh, for that, uh, disenfranchised community. And, uh, it will be published with Sophia Institute press. I think the tentative, uh, date for publishing is September of this year. Well, I'm excited to read it. As I mentioned, I'm going to have you back on the show. You've, uh, you, you can't say no, you've already agreed. I'm going to hold you to it. Uh, but I'm excited <laughs> to hear, hear about that. And, you know, I love, I'm definitely going to get a copy of this book. Uh, I love hearing, and reading stories about those who have uh, far worse living conditions than we do and experience oppression every day. I'm doubly interested in those stories if they are about persecuted Christians who are standing up for their faith and refusing to recant what they believe and suffering loss for the sake of the gospel. So it really sounds like a good book, and I'm excited to, to dive in. So uh, thanks for writing it, and I look forward to having you back soon to talk about that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'll look, I'll look forward to talking to you and uh, hopefully a lot of other interviews as well uh, Yeah, when, once it's published. You'll do the book circuit. Are you going to do some uh, some book signings or you know, pre-reserve like 100 copies that you'll, you'll be able to pass out at, at, uh, for, for special prices on the personally signed copies? Oh, yeah. I'm thinking at least $500 a pop. What, do you think that's reasonable? I, I mean, <laughs> at least, yeah. Probably maybe, maybe double that. Yeah, yeah. Good thinking. <laughs> for, <laughs> first book, I mean, it's going to be like a rookie card, you know? <laughs> that's right 
that's how it works, isn't it? I think so. Um, if only. <laughs> well, uh, today we're going to talk about something very different from that. Um, but we're going to talk about a man named Robert Louis Dabney. Now, you recently wrote about him at Crisis Magazine. I will link to the piece in the show notes. I was familiar with Dabney by name, uh, but not by content or substance. So I was really intrigued to read your article about Dabney and, and understand a little bit more about who this man was. He was a man with uh, with complicated views, with uh, quite polemical views, uh, with with some views that were rather astute, with other views um, that were horribly wrong. We'll talk about <laughs> you know his views on slavery, for example. Um, but tell us a little bit uh, who was this this man, Robert Louis Dabney. Yeah, so I've been fascinated with Dabney for a long time, going back to when I was a Presbyterian seminary student um, about 15 years ago, and he truly was a remarkable polymath. He had uh, degrees from Hampton Sydney College, University of Virginia, and Union Theological Seminary, uh, where he got his PhD. He was a missionary, pastor, theologian, seminary professor. He designed a number of churches in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He was a chaplain during the Civil War, and including uh, serving on uh, for Stonewall Jackson. And uh, he was also a founding member of the philosophy department at the University of Texas. So it sounds like you really just like him or, or were intrigued by him because of your common alma mater in the University of Virginia. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Actually, yeah. One of one of the dorms is actually named after him, which I did not realize the connection until after I was gone. I'm surprised that that has <laughs> survived the sort of renaming of dorms because he was, as you mentioned in your piece, as you as you openly acknowledge, he was a supporter of slavery. So is you know if that's on the docket for UVA to rename that hall. Well, yeah, I suppose I should say that, it, that there was a dorm named after him as of circa 2002 when I was a, a freshman at the University of Virginia. It, it, may, it may be gone by now. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it was, uh, I forget which college it was, but there was one that was trying to rename a dormitory uh, that was in for Flannery O'Connor. I mean, so there, yes. uh, there, there, was, there are no bounds. Um, you know, Dabney, I think, is a more complicated figure. And as an open, uh, open supporter of slavery, I think there's a, certainly a stronger case um, than, you know, stronger case to rename a dorm for him than there is for Flannery O'Connor, who, you know, was a open Catholic and, uh, uh, you know, hater of racism, despite the fact that she personally wrestled with it and, and openly acknowledged her her struggles with sin in that regard. But I digress. Uh, I could talk about Flannery all day. So uh, let's return to uh, Robert Louis Dabney here. Again, I should have been more familiar with him uh, as someone who once worked at the University of Texas, um, where, as you mentioned, he founded the philosophy department. But uh, what were some of his views about Catholicism in particular? He was obviously a, an avowed Protestant, um, and he did not love the Catholic Church, but as you mentioned in your article, he had some ideas about the Catholic Church that were actually spot on. Certainly, Dabney um, was uh, emblematic of his age in 19th century Protestant America. So in, in his writings, he was referring to Catholicism by pejorative names like Romanism or Popery, which I always find amusing um i mean so potpourri in, it sounds like the um the the floral collection of dried flower petals you know potpourri like right. p-o-t-p-o-u-r-r-i uh that's what i always think of when people say potpourri and so i i also that is that is also kind of my preferred term uh for you know my, my, my preferred pejorative term for the catholic church like this this lovely floral arrangement that smells very nice why not that's that's, that's there, there could be worse things Maybe we should rename your podcast Creedal Papist. Um, <laughs> Creedal we, we can Papist. Kinda... <laughs> no, I think just Creedal Popery. Creedal Popery, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually know a, uh, I know a contemporary Protestant who likes to refer to the Catholic Church as um, the Romanist Church or Romanism. So it's, it's not like that term is, has totally died out, out of fashion either. That one's still alive at least. No, no, yeah, you're certainly true. I've, I've reviewed books where um, 
it's re- it's referred to as Romanism. But yeah, so anyway, Dabney viewed Catholicism as a perversion of the Christian faith, and his uh, most striking criticism of Catholicism appeared in a, something he wrote at the very end of his life, 1894. So, you know, we're talking 30 years after the Civil War. Uh, the treatise was called The Attractions of Popery. Um, and there he, he says uh, that Catholicism adjusts to every superstition, every sense of guilt, every foible and craving of the depraved human heart. Um, so <laughs> certainly very negative opinions about Catholicism, but what he also realized that, that there was quite a few attractive qualities about the Catholic faith, uh, namely things like its traditionalism, its sacramentalism, its internal intellectual coherency, and also its dogged defensiveness of objective truth, which acted as a, a sort of bulwark against uh, the liberalism and secularism that, he, that Dabney had identified as undermining Protestantism from within. Uh, so we read things like him saying, to the shame of our damaged Protestantism, Popery remains in some essential respects more faithful to God's truth than its rival. Um, and yeah, because of that, he feared that uh, when Americans tire of the banality of modern evangelicalism, they will be the ripest of prey for Romish ritualism. Oh man, such such rich and vivid imagery from our friend Robert Louis Dabney here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So let's let's take the first quote there. Um, you mentioned that he accused the church of adjusting to, quote, every superstition, every sense of guilt, every foible and craving of the depraved human heart. Um, I want to just unpack that a little bit and suggest that Dabney may not be entirely wrong there, um, but that he's, he's just wrong enough to sort of misunderstand the whole scheme. And what I mean by that is, you know, he was he was criticizing the church as sort of accommodating all of the worst of humanity. What he's recognizing, I think, is that um, the church contains all of the worst of humanity, right? So we can find um, sinners throughout the church and some of the worst sinners throughout the church as the sexual abuse crises of the last three decades have um, unfortunately made all too clear. But what we also see is that the church actually appeals to every sense of guilt, every foible, and every craving of the depraved human heart, by which I mean there's something in it for everyone. And there's, there's no person who is so far gone that the church cannot speak into their life. Um, and I think I, I, it's not that Dabney would disagree with that, that phrase as applying to Christianity, but it sounds like he would at least disagree with that phrase as applying to, to Catholicism. But I think um, it's very easy, even today, to look at the church and say, wow, some really bad clerics there, some really bad people in there. Why would I want to be a part of that? There's clearly nothing supernatural going on in there. It's just a giant collection of human foibles and errors and inclinations. But uh, in reality, you also, if, if you're going to take that sort of a look and judge by um, the characters within the church, judge by her sinners, you also need to judge her by her saints, where there are a lot of people who have had uh, some really, really wayward paths and have been drawn back to the truth because of the the grace offered to them in the church. I think that is certainly true. Also, I think what what Dabney misses, and he misses it because of his strong allegiance to Reformation thinking about our relationship with God is an overemphasis on the intellectual component of our faith uh, to um, to the loss of the fact that we are embodied souls, right? And that the 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 reason why Catholicism has been so um, willing to embrace the tactile and the sensory is because it recognizes that as embodied souls, we yearn for that, we crave for beautiful art and wonderful liturgical music and even, you know, the smells of incense. 
Um, so I think he viewed that as sort of an abomination that distracted from the true and pure word of God. Um, but and unfortunately, I think he also forgot the fact that you know these were all of these things were also things that had existed in the Old Testament um, and the worship of God. And there's certainly plenty of of evidence from the early church fathers and from the uh, remains of liturgies that we have um, for the first few centuries of the church that these were all these. It was a continuation of what had existed in the people of God in the Old Testament, rather than um, yeah, there there, is, there was no uh, sort of like pure. Um, solely word of God preached and consumed version of the early church. Uh, it, it was always something that appealed to, uh, to our embodiment. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Let's, um, let's go on a little bit more and talk about more specifically sort of the context in which Dabney was writing and thinking and how that informed his views. So Dabney, uh, was a 19th century man, um, entirely. He was born in 1820 and died before the 20th century in 1898 so he lived through some notable periods, uh, is most especially perhaps the Civil War and eventually the um, the emancipation of all slaves who were in the United States. Uh, but he also was alive in a time where, even in his native Protestantism, as you already alluded, Casey, he was seeing this encroaching secularism, a product of the Enlightenment, a skepticism towards the supernatural, towards miracles. You know, I think of um, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, speaking of the Civil War, who uh, has been immortalized in um, in the sort of Robert Shahara uh, 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 trilogy, um, The Killer Angels, uh, I think is the first book or the second book, but the Civil War, Civil War trilogy. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is kind of the hero of the Gettysburg battle on the north, northern side. And in the movie, he gives a stirring speech about the freedom of all men, etc., um, and he's sort of portrayed um, post hoc today as a, as a man of faith, but really he was not a man of faith. He was a man of um, almost entirely naturalistic faith. And in other words, he actually denied the existence of supernatural things. He was very much a rationalist. And and his, um, his sort of uh, mode of thinking was one that was becoming more and more common in the 19th century when Dabney was alive. So he's writing and thinking in this time when Protestantism is already being attacked it's it's probably i don't know it's probably fair to say that it's, it reached its zenith in his lifetime and then he was seeing sort of the beginning of the end i don't know if you'd agree with that casey but that, that's kind of how i see it uh, but anything to add about sort of the cultural milieu the historical context in which dabney is writing and then and then we'll kind of talk about how that informed what he said and what he thought sure i mean so in the 19th century we're seeing cer- certainly very you know, this, this is the time of, of revivalism in the United States. So, uh, in, I mean, in the, in the years leading up to the Civil War and during the Civil War, as someone, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on um, religion in, in the Civil War, particularly black religion. But, I mean, this is, this is a time where lots of, a, a very large percentage of the American people are going to church, reading the Bible. The, the knowledge of the Bible was very impressive amongst the a common, uh, common Americans. Um, but at the same time, an explosion of different bizarre forms of Protestantism. I mean, you know, Mormonism um, and uh, Christian Scientism both, you know, occur in Dab- – uh, they, they're, they're born in Dabney's lifetime, and there's plenty of others. And I think in some respects he's seeing that. And when, so when he talks about anarchy um, and, and license and insubordination, I think he's looking at the fact that Protestantism in America is just going in a, in a hundred different directions – um, encouraging and encouraging all sorts of like false philosophies, as he would say. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So he, and in contrast, Dabney looks at Catholicism and he sees that, 
uh, you know, Rome is the stable advocate of obedience, order, and permanent authority throughout the ages. And I, one of the things I love about his take on this is that you know it's it's like he it's like he um, correctly anticipates how Rome will be holding the line, even 150 years after he's writing these criticisms. But he does it for the for the wrong reasons, but they're only like slightly wrong. I mean, I think in his eyes, like Rome is just so like stubbornly human and authoritarian that it will hold the line. Uh, and it is true that Rome is in fact stubbornly authoritarian. I don't mean that in a, like today, of course, the word authoritarian has a bunch of like really unhelpful baggage that I'm not referring to, but it is authoritarian in the in the sense that it has a locus of authority. And it does hold the line. So what he saw as a negative for Rome is, in fact, the one of the biggest positives that allows Rome to prevent the encroachment of these forces of modernism and secularism that and, and rationalism that are attacking religion from all sides at the time that Dabney's writing. Yeah, and there's there's also an irony here too in that what Dabney is frustrated about regarding the Protestantism that he's experiencing is it's sort of like dogged individualism, but I mean, that is, that is his own Protestantism, right? He's, he's sort of like looking back to some sort of golden age of Presbyterianism when everyone was reading the Westminster confession of faith and obeying um, the various, you know, uh, reformed catechetical documents. But even in the reformation era, there's uh, a similar explosion of different forms of opinions on how to interpret the Bible. There's the radical reformation and all of its, uh, you know, violence um, and uh, yet very, very strong disagreements over uh, biblical interpretation and doctrine. Um, so it's almost in a way he's, he's looking back to something that didn't really exist just because of the very inherent nature of Protestantism, right? Like Dabney has his own opinions about biblical interpretation to not shared by many other Presbyterians or Protestants, even in his own time. Yeah, and I'm thinking here of the no true Scotsman fallacy, right? Like it's um it's been my experience in many cases that when you point to one of the many problems of you know in the lack of an authority in a Protestant hermeneutic, uh the response is well, like what the well that's not really the Protestant perspective. That's not really <laughs> the Presbyterian approach or whatever it is. So you just you just fall back on this no true Scotsman fallacy or your interlocutor does and all they have to say is well that's not really you know, Presbyterian, Presbyterianism, for example, has never really succeeded because it's never really been tried. It's just, you know, and, and that's that's the no true Scotsman fallacy that I think is uh, it's very difficult to avoid the further down you go. Um, similar, by the way, I just did a, a debate on uh, baptism. Or I didn't do it, but I attended a debate on baptism. And uh, the infant baptism versus uh, believer's baptism crowd, uh, it's, it's a very interesting discussion. But ultimately, you know, if, if someone has been um, baptized, or they profess a faith, they've been baptized, but then they end up being a horrible person by virtue of all of the public acts that they commit, that person was never truly saved, right? So it's it's the no true Scotsman fallacy once again. Well, that, that person never really had a saving faith. They may have said they did, they may have been baptized, but they never really had a saving faith. Um, and it, that's not our position. Um, our position becomes a lot more clean cut, um, you know, counterintuitively perhaps, but uh, the no true Scotsman fallacy is one that, that can be a little bit frustrating. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, God bless Anthony Flew. I think he's the one who came up with the no true Scotsman yeah. fallacy. I think yeah. he, he converted to some form of Christianity at the end of his life. I, I think, uh, I'm going to look this up, but I think it was Catholicism, actually. I could definitely okay. be wrong, and I probably am. Uh, it happens yeah. a lot. 
Um, okay, so let's let's go on a little bit more. Dabney, you mentioned one of those quotes about what Dabney um, believes about Catholicism. Tell us some more about his thoughts on Catholicism. You know, maybe have some more quotes that you can throw at us, but what else did he think? We can maybe dissect that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So he viewed, uh, of, of course, very negatively Catholic prayer and liturgy. He referred to its machine prayers and vain repetitions. I'm sure he has in mind here things like the rosary. Um, but he also acknowledges that they create habits of religious reverence, right, in a, in a craving for sensuous objects of worship and a visible material object of worship. So He's, you know, he's sort of deriding, you know, what a lot of Protestants will refer to as the smells and bells of Catholicism, um, with their, you know, their relics, crucifixes, and images of saints. But he's also appreciating the fact that these things actually draw a lot of the masses in because it gives them something um, to hold on to and, and a different way to experience their faith, right? I mean, which goes back to, you know, a time in Christian history when the vast majority of Christians were not literate, right? And the fact that there we have these beautiful churches and cathedrals in Europe with biblical imagery all over the walls and ceilings, right? It, that is itself, it's not just pretty artwork. It's a, it is a catechesis of its own. Yeah, that totally makes sense too. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to your previous comments about how we are in sold bodies. Um, and I think Dabney too is, in so much of American Protestantism, inherits the uh, the spirit and forms of puritanism to sort of adapt the uh, the title of uh, Louis Bouillet's book um, the spirit and forms of puritanism that being like um, staid interiors right very minimal sacred art nothing that even approaches something that we could call an icon you know the most we'll have is a uh, is a cross not even a crucifix but a cross on an altar um, maybe some candles you know but avoiding a lot now that's not to say of course that every Protestant church in America is devoid of beauty that's far from the case but um, it is certainly the case that like most, most of the uh, expressions of Anglicanism, even in America, uh, were pretty low church, um, owing in part to their, um, to their decidedly Protestant and anti-monarchical, um, origins. If we're talking about the, you know, going back to the 18th century. So it's not surprising that Dabney thought the way he did, but obviously his, his whole thinking about why the Catholic church looks the way it does, why each parish looks the way it does were, um, were deeply flawed. Um, so another area is uh, Catholicism's teaching on sexuality. Um, and I, I think here he was perceiving, this was actually something I was not aware of until I had started to read Dabney, that um, the, the tendency towards uh, contraception predates the Lambeth Conference, right? I think a lot of people will talk about the Lambeth Conference in, what, 1937 uh, with the Anglican Church, where they, you know, they finally embraced contraception, Um but he was perceiving that it was already uh, there was already a sort of like a sexual libertinism and laziness that had infected uh, 19th century American Protestantism, um, and it was you know sort of allowing for all kind of uh, degradations. Uh, he saw it even with the um, the proliferation of divorce and how Protestant states were making it so easy uh, for uh, for people to divorce, and so it, he contrasted that with a Catholic Church that took sexuality seriously took marriage seriously. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so also again, sort of like the, um, the pejorative, you know, super large Catholic family, right. That, that Catholicism only perpetuates itself because Catholic parents just have so many kids. Now, uh, I think, I mean, obviously he was presciently correct on all of that. Um, as we look at the churches that are holding the line against, um, all sorts of false sexual ethics, 
it's the Catholic Church that's doing so um, in a in a singular fashion. Now, that's of course like we have to be careful, Casey, not to um, not to conflate that with uh, you know every single person in the pews adhering to that teaching and living that teaching, right? Um, and the first thing is the first thing to say is like we are a church of sinners, and so uh, you know I heard um, Michael Brendan Doherty, who I know you you know of Casey, but he's a Catholic writer. Writes for uh, National Review Online and a few other places. Um, he's he's been at various publications over the past decade or so. But he's a very good writer. Has a book called "My Father Left Me Ireland." That's kind of a personal memoir of searching for his identity. He's a convert to Catholicism from atheism, in fact. But I heard him say the other day that he really likes the term "practicing Catholic." He says, "I'm a practicing Catholic," and he says, "Not to um, not because I just want to identify as someone who is actually doing the faith, but as someone who's practicing it. Like I'm I'm trying to get better, and I'm not very good at it. And so that's the first thing about any." person of faith. And I think it would be unfair to knock um, Protestantism just because not everyone in the pews follows all of all of the teachings that they hear on Sundays. Uh, and so in the same way, I don't want to say that Catholicism is clearly correct because all the people do it correctly, um, right? That That's not the case. But we do have this this thing called the magisterium. We do have magisterial teachings and we can we can we can point to specific encyclicals, Casey, Let's say, no, here's where the line has been held against things like contraception, right? This this is where the line has been held against um, how to conceive of man and woman and what a marriage is. You can't do that for other churches. The best you could do is maybe a uh, a sort of like bishop synod somewhere in, in the Anglican church or in the Lutheran church. But the more recent of those in the vast majority of cases are ones in which they've gone precisely the opposite way and affirmed things that they should not be affirming, etc., uh, and so it's, again, an example of, uh, of Dabney, Dabney being overly prescient. You know, one thing I have to say on this is I am appreciative of how intellectually honest Dabney is because it's easy to it's easy to just concoct all sorts of arguments about how the other side is wrong and not even give them uh, a fair shake in what they what they do right or what they do well or how they will fare in the same fight that your own is going through. And I, I sometimes wonder if I do this, just if I'm sort of, you know, if I'm less charitable towards what Protestantism has, because there are times where I, I go to a Protestant, and, I, and I, I guess I don't really go to Protestant churches anymore. There were there were times in the past before I was Catholic that I'd go to Protestant churches and when I was considering Catholicism. And I would just think, man, if only if only every Catholic walked into their walked into church carrying a Bible so they could follow on follow along with the readings and with the homily, right? If only if only every Catholic in the pews was as committed to joining a, a Bible study as the Protestants in this pew. If only every Catholic in the pews was as uh, was, was singing as heartily as the Protestants here are, etc. So they're definitely, they're definitely uh, I don't want to come across saying that there are no deficiencies in Protestantism. And I do want to commend uh, Dabney for at least acknowledging where his own tradition was deficient. Um, I think time has proven him very correct. Yeah, I think that's definitely accurate. It reminds me, um, I had to, uh, drive down for a funeral for a family member this past weekend. And it was a long trip. And so I had all these CDs in the car. I'm going through like these old CDs, much of which from my evangelical, uh, my, my life as an evangelical, including these old jars of clay CDs. Um, and one in particular, Who We Are Instead, which probably like 2007 maybe. And um, man, by like the fourth song, I'm weeping. Um, because it was just, uh, they're, they understand so much about the human person and how we relate to God. Definitely profound truths, good music too. Um, So I heartily agree with you that there is uh, yeah, the the criticisms of Protestantism does not negate the, the beauty and um, 
and, and, and truths that, that are still retained in those traditions. Yeah, by the way, Who We Are Instead, 2003. Oh, 2003. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, but I, I totally hear you. I was actually, the other day, I was going back uh, and listening to some Reliant K, uh, which is not exactly in the same genre of Jars of Clay, but um, but still kind of in the sort of broader CCM universe, I guess, contemporary Christian music. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you've heard like the the 10-minute long song, This Is My Deathbed from Reliant K. That no. is, uh, that's another weeper. So, uh, you know, I encourage you to go check that out. But yeah, I, I, uh, I totally hear what you're saying on Dabney. And I think the reason I mentioned what I did just a few minutes ago is because this, I, I want to be clear that, you know, Dabney was right about Catholicism in many respects. Um, and particularly in all the ways in which he sort of meant to be critical of them. He was sort of, I guess, giving a backhand compliment, but also when he acknowledged that these are going to be the guys holding the line, he was right. And we can now, with the benefit of 150 years of hindsight, we can see that very clearly. But I want to be clear that this is not an instance of like even a, a blind squirrel finds a nut, right? <laughs> <laughs> this this is like Dabney was a, a very thoughtful man, obviously, who had very, um, very obviously opinionated ways about the the world, uh, opinionated ideas about the world, but who also was intellectually honest enough to to take sort of clear stock of what was going on around him. And I think because of that, he was able to see somewhat prophetically, I'm not calling him a, a capital P prophet, but just, you know, in, in the sense that he could sort of anticipate the future and, and see the direction in which things were going. Yeah. I, I, perhaps some of that could have been the influence of um, the Scottish enlightenment, or I, th I think what, uh, what was called common sense rationalism. And it's actually something, it's sort of a blind spot in my own understanding of um, philosophy within the Protestant tradition. But I know it was something that was very popular in 19th century uh, reformed thinking. And it, it was, it, it, it sort of in, in certain respects mimics Thomism um, in, its, in its high regard for um, sort of like, uh, you know, approaching truth apart from the Bible and understanding what we can gather about the world and from, and humanity just by, you know, rational thinking. And so I, I think perhaps that also helps Dabney to, um, to maybe appreciate some of these things because he wasn't just uh, maybe a sort of a, a different kind of pejorative that like the me and my Bible kind of evangelical, you know, that he had a deep well of an intellectual tradition from which he could also draw from um, in evaluating Catholicism and his, and his own tradition. That totally makes sense. Uh, and when you said blind spot on sort of uh, Reformation political philosophy, uh, it made me think of another question I had for you about really blind spots in general. Um, and the, the, you know, less, less people think that we are sort of um, writing the hagiography of Dabney. We, we already mentioned this, right? We have to be transparent about some of his um, brutally and horrifically wrong ideas as well, including, as you acknowledge in your article, that he was a supporter of slavery. So I think, you know, at the end, uh, you call him the anti-Catholic Confederate Calvinist, which is like, um, you know, quite, quite a, quite a banner, I guess, to, to bear. Um, but, but accurate. And so I, my question for you here, and this is not like a, we got him, uh, this is not a cancellation call, uh, but, but I, <laughs> this does, this does open up some like interesting fodder for discussion about how we should view the glaring moral faults of professed Christians throughout history. Um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, uh, the, because George Whitfield, right. A very well-known preacher, second grade, First grade, second grade awakening, right? Uh, one of the great awakenings. Uh, I always get them mixed up. Um, but George Whitefield, um, 
man, now I'm uh, I'm looking it up. He's, Hold on. He's first. I, I think he's first. Yeah, because it was it was right. in the he's 18th this, century. Yeah, yeah. So it had to be the first. So um, because the second was in actually in Dabney's time, right? That's uh, like the burned over districts in New York, right? Like the 1830s. Yeah, yeah. So that would have been like the early the early Dabney years. Okay, so first Great Awakening is George Whitfield, and he's like, you know, circuit riding and traveling all around the U.S. preaching. But but Whitfield was, I think, he was actually a slave owner. Um, but at the very least, you know, a supporter of the the system of slavery. And so uh, this is something that that America and, by the way, most countries in the world that are older than, you know, 200 years old um, have to wrestle with is the existence of slavery in their history. So just in the in the context of of that fact, um, how do you think we should sort of think about Dabney and the legacy of Dabney or and or men like him, given their support of slavery? I think that um, the writings of uh, two historians, a husband and wife, Eugene and Elizabeth Fox Genovese, um, both both deceased, both died within the last uh, maybe 15 years. I, I think their their opinion and their writings on this is really helpful. Their story is actually one I would strongly encourage listeners to check out because it really is just remarkable. These were two um, very leftist Marxist historians of the antebellum period in, in America um, who can both converted to Catholicism. I think Elizabeth Fox first in the 1980s. And then her husband, Eugene Genovese, who people probably would not be surprised to know was originally born Catholic in an Italian family. Um, so she brought him back into the fold as well. So they actually ended, they ended their career as sort of bastions of conservative Catholicism. Um, and one of the books that they wrote towards the end of their career, the mind of the master class in the, um, in the mid nineties, they, they spend a lot of time talking about Dabney. The book more generally is about just understanding how um, the master class in the antebellum period uh, thought about the world and themselves. Um, it's a sympathetic portrayal, not in the sense that they're sympathetic towards racism or the Confederacy, but more just trying to get inside their mind. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that they both talk about there is um, they say that they think that contemporary understanding or opinions on the antebellum period and the civil war, they've got it backwards, right? So like the question that we often ask is something like, how could these people do this, right? How, how could they have um, viewed an entire group of people just based on the color of their skin as inferior and enslaved them um, and exploited their labor uh, and, you know, and take advantage of them in all these different ways, right? The question is, the, 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 more, the more interesting question is not how could they have done it, but why did they ever stop in the first place? Because what the Genovese's note is that until the 19th century, slavery had been ubiquitous across just about every culture on the planet. Um, and yeah, granted, a lot of that wasn't necessarily racially motivated slavery, but it was slavery nonetheless, right? Um, so what's remarkable is that in the course of a couple of generations in the 19th century, the Western world resoundingly rejects slavery as immoral, right? Brazil is the last Western nation to outlaw slavery in 1888. And the primary mover behind this massive social change is the work of Christians. Christian, uh, you could call them sort of like uh, a, a social justice movement, right? A, a Christian humanist movement that was in many respects like a, a, a progenitor of the civil rights movement, right? So I think contemporary discussions of uh, historical slavery have kind of lost sight of that. Um, and uh, and the, the fact that it was a peculiarly Christian conception of humanity and human dignity that came to view slavery is reprehensible. So I think we have to think about, we have to, when we, when we perceive people like Dabney, we have to remember that like he lived at a time when even many people in the North, right. Who did not own slaves still had, um, 
what we would consider racist opinions about black people and, and, and people of other skin colors, right? Like, and, and a lot of it had to do with the, the ubiquity of slavery and, and certainly how it was racially uh, tinged in an American context. Um, but, and I, I mean, and, and even more broadly, look, I mean, the Bible has no explicit condemnation of slavery. Like it, it vacillates between, you know, sometimes it, it sort of, it, it maybe endorses it or at least makes acceptance for it. And then I'm not saying that there are certain passages in the Bible that would seem to suggest that um, the Christian narrative is moving in an anti-slavery direction, right? We can think of what St. Paul says in Galatians 3 when he t- talks about there's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, right? Like Mark, the uh, historian Mark Knoll has talked about this a lot, how he, he views the, the broader arc of the scriptural narrative is one toward envisioning a world where slavery is no longer possible because of how um, the Christian, uh, the Christian worldview perceives all men and women as equally created in the image of God and worthy of dignity. Um, but all that to say, I mean, like it, it takes, it, that took time for that arc to work itself out. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in some respects, perhaps we have a long way to go in, in, um, in understanding all humans as having, the same dignity. I mean, I, I suppose right, in, right now in an American context, we can talk about abortion and the pro-life movement um, and a, a law of a, a failure to appreciate dignity there. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we have to give Dabney a little bit of slack in that respect because he is very much a man of his time, just as Jefferson and Washington were men of their time. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally does. Uh, I, I have several responses to what you just said. Um, I, I think I largely agree with you. I was going to go to abortion as well, just in the, um, to, to your point about being a product of your own time and, and not actually rigorously questioning the practices in which you grow up. Right. So it is, it is demonstrably true. I think today that many people accept abortion as a, uh, as a fundamental human right at a minimum. And in some cases as like a fundamentally good thing that leads to the emancipation of women, Um, and that is in part because that's been the case now since the 1970s that we've had legalized abortion on demand since Roe v. Wade. So there, so, so people today, people who've been born, I mean, uh, there are people who are, um, uh, you know, almost 50 years old today who are, who, who who've been born in a post-Roe world, right? Like I think 48 year olds this year uh, have been born in a post row world. And so they've grown up in this time where they've never really had to question it. Now there, I think is, you know, there's, there's lots, there are lots of reasons to question abortion. There are lots of things going on in the pro-life movement. And I think you'd be have to, you'd be having to live under a rock to not even engage with the arguments at all. But yet there are a lot of people who are living under a rock today and they have not engaged seriously with the arguments on abortion. I, I can't even tell you how many people I, I have talked to about my own views on human life and when it deserves to be protected parentheses. That's always, uh, and, and, you know, like they'll tell me like, well, I, I personally don't agree with abortion, but I really just think it's up to a woman, woman to choose. And, and then I go into like the philosophical underpinnings for my beliefs. And then they say like, oh yeah, that's, I hadn't really thought about it that way before. Like that's, that's a, a really good, I don't really know what to say. That's a good point. I, I have to think about that. And so there are, there are many people, many people today who have just not rigorously questioned the assumptions that are built into the scheme. And I think that's, that's the same for many people of history. Now, where it's a little bit different for Dabney is that like, you know, what, what you're saying and the historians you're quoting, Mark Knoll and um, Gen- Genovese, is that we said the last yeah. name? Yeah. 
Um, you know, what they said about Christianity is, I think, also demonstrably true. It is true that Christianity has been, uh, on balance, a force for social good in the places where it has been. does not mean that it has always done good or has always benefited everyone. I'm not saying that. But on balance, it has um, helped helped peoples and nations achieve a broader vision and more comprehensive vision of social justice. And slavery is no exception, right? So we can't really divorce the story of uh, of emancipation in the Western world from the story of Christianity, but I think we can, you know, you, you mentioned like giving Dabney a little bit of slack. I, I don't know if I totally agree with that because he, this is like a, this is a cleric, right? Who, who should know better? Like if there's one person who should question rigorously the assumptions that are ingrained in the slavery system, it should be a cleric and, and you know, a, a Protestant cleric and even more so a Catholic cleric. So I'll, you know, to be consistent, I'll be even harder on the Catholic clerics. Um, and so, you know, I'd be hard on, um, I guess I tend to be more hard on people on men of the cloth of, of Catholic clerics of certainly of all professed Christians, but, but especially of clerics in, um, in world history, in, in our context, in American history, who, who failed to do that, you know, and if you're like actively writing in defense of slavery, um, that earns you a sort of double dose of condemnation in my book. Now, now I say condemnation sort of like rather pithily. I'm not uh, God sitting on the judgment seat of God. And I know that all of us stand under judgment and I know that, uh, everyone has their blind spots, but I think it does it does make me question, you know, if, if Dabney is advocating a pro-slavery position, it makes me question the other things he's writing because I then have to think, okay, this man clearly did not think through the implications of um, human dignity as expressed in Holy Scripture and Holy Tradition. So maybe, therefore, I should read him with a slightly more cautious approach now, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, I, I think perhaps give him a little bit more slack was the was um, not the best uh, turn of phrase to use. I think what I'm what I'm more saying is just that we I think we have to be willing to. I mean, yeah, we we have to we have to have a certain empathy even for our enemies, right? Yes. I mean, even even people who do terribly wicked things, and yeah, I, I I'll certainly agree that Dabney's opinions on race and slavery are are morally reprehensible, but I, I, as you know. I, Jordan Peterson, who's talked about like, yeah, well, you know, if you were living in a time where a certain injustice was going on and you profited from it, would you, would you be the person to, you know, stand up and, and, and reject it? And I think sadly, most people, you know, living in, you know, whether it's in the antebellum South and you grow up in a culture where, you know, you benefit from it as a, you know, as a white slave owner, or, you know, even look at an example like Nazi Germany, right? Like how many Germans just stood by and watched, right? So it's, I think it's easy in one sense for us to, we can stand back and we can look at the great injustices of history and say, how dare they? I mean, like these people that did it just, that stood by and just watched. But we, I think we have to be honest with ourselves that gosh, you know, I think we all have a level of cowardice that we have to confront, right? And, and given the same sort of circumstances, we, we may be surprised how cowardly um, and, uh, and immoral we, we ourselves can be. I mean, I think that's spot on. I could not agree with you more. And I think, I think that's, that's one of the missing pieces from these conversations, right? Is it's like, yeah, you know, I think we get wrapped up in like, wow, how bad was this man? How bad was this, this person who thought this thing? Uh, and that, that may be getting at part of it, right? That's, that's half right. Uh, it's half right because it's true that those people said and did horrible things. What it leaves out though, is that we say and do horrible things as well. And so we end up having this like really severe view of history um, where we, we, where we actually, we, you know, we cut, we cut off so much history from ourselves that we don't actually learn the lessons that we need to from history. And, and those lessons, if we paid attention would teach us that we also are subject to the same exact blind spots and foibles as everyone else. You know, when you, when you were talking about, um, you know, who, who among us today would be courageous enough to take a stand, like 
it, when I look around our culture today, I see people who are who don't even take moral stands on issues because they're afraid of getting called out on like TikTok or Twitter, right? <laughs> right. So like that's that's the world we live in. Like we we will compromise our moral principles just so we don't get called mean things on social media. Um, and so you know, basically, I, you know, I'm not talking to you here, but just to to the broader sort of we can't talk about this person, you know, cry me a river because we need to talk about these people so that we can better understand ourselves and better be prepared to not make the same mistakes that they did. Um, that's what, that's what learning is all about. And it's kind of surprising to me, you know, we don't use the language in the Catholic church. We don't use about, we don't use language like the arc of history bends toward justice. Um, but it's surprising to me that, that the, um, the sort of, uh, the political left, or maybe we'll call them sort of the idealist utopians, who do use that language, they often don't want to engage with our history. But how can we actually make sure, in their view, how can we make sure the arc of history bends toward justice if we can't actually engage with the past to make sure that uh, we're, we're, we're bending uh, bending that arc the way it should be? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it, there's, um, I mean, as I'm a student of history, I taught high school history. I, I'm very concerned about what's happening um, in public schools and at, the, at universities right now in, in terms of, a, it's a certain... Um, sometimes it's just an erasure of history, right? There's just certain people that we're just no longer going to talk about because they're, they're viewed with such vitri with such vitriol. Um, and even if we don't erase them, we speak about them in, in primarily negative, ne negative and judgmental terms, right? We view them as, um, yeah, re reprehensible rather than, yeah. I mean, human beings like us, the thing that I come back to, and I've written this in a number of articles is, um, you know, do, what are we going to do in our lifetimes that a generation or two from now, the statues that have been built to us are going to be torn down. Right. And, and also what, what does it say <laughs> to our progeny when we're tearing down the statues of the people of the past? Right. We're just sort of, we're opening ourselves up for being condemned in sort of like the same blinkered uh, fashion that we ourselves are doing now. Yeah, I'm confident that um, that there will not even be any statues built of me anywhere at any point. So I don't have to worry about my statue being torn being torn down because it will never be built in the first place. I'll build you one, Zach. I think you're worthy of it. <laughs> Just maybe maybe back in your in your new garden in the backyard, you know, <laughs> next to my Saint Francis statue, I'll have a little one to Zach Griffin. <laughs> well, Casey, uh, we are out of, out of time, but I, I think especially as a uh, previous in a previous life, a public school history teacher it would be good to have you back on, maybe just talk about, um, talk about some of those educational issues as well. Um, and Catholic education. And I know it's something that you and I have thought a lot about just for our own kids since we've got young kids and want to make sure they're getting the education that they need. So maybe that'll, we'll, we'll, we'll table that for a future discussion. Cause I think that could be really interesting. Yeah, I would love to do it. I, I love talking about history anytime. Sounds good. Well, let's have you on then sometime soon. Uh, and we'll look forward to bringing you back on in late August or early September, depending on the release date of your book to talk about that, share some stories of persecuted uh, Christians in the far East. Um, and, uh, and yeah, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation today, Casey. Thanks for joining me. Always find it edifying to speak with you and, uh, best wishes as you near the publication of your first book, your rookie card. <laughs> thanks so much it was a pleasure to be with you and yeah I, I had a lot of fun um talking about yeah dabney civil war um gosh racism in america T difficult topics but it, i mean these are things we have to grapple with hopefully we can do it in a, in a prayerful and charitable manner yeah totally agree well uh to my listeners thank you for listening to another episode uh if you want to follow casey's work i definitely encourage you to do that you can find his work at caseychalk.com 
KCCHALK.com. Like chalk on a whiteboard, which I, I guess is a pretty appropriate for a previous uh, high school history teacher, Casey. So. Oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> probably, probably lots of comments from students and jokes about it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you got a question for Casey, feel free to send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C at creedlepodcast.com. I'd be happy to send you a note. If you want to send me a note and ask me a question or provide some feedback on this episode, please do. Zach at creedlepodcast.com. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to give it a five-star rating if you don't mind uh, and uh, let me know what I can be doing better. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. God bless you.